Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about recent developments in the India-China Cold War, the bumpy road to peace in Afghanistan, and how COVID restrictions are changing the relative power between nations. All that and more coming up. Let's get into the rapid-fire news. So, a top Iranian nuclear scientist, Mozen Fakhrizadeh, Mozen Fakhrizadeh, there we go, uh, has been assassinated, likely by Israeli or U.S. operatives in the region, uh, or at least that's what Iranians claiming. And well, it's again highly likely that. America and Israel are involved in the situation. There are crackdowns on big companies in the UK. Uh, the UK, Mexico, and Venezuela. Mexico has begun an investigation of Walmart for monopolistic practices. The UK is seeking to curb the influence of big tech companies. And Venezuela has sentenced six American sitgo executives working in the country to eight years in jail for embezzlement. All that amidst uh, Trump, President Trump pardoning General Michael Flynn. Uh, yeah, that's the rapid fire news. And now, China and Nepal. Uh, recently, the Chinese Defense Minister went and met with the Nepali Army Chief General to talk about military cooperation. The Defense Minister of China said that China supports Nepal in safeguarding its sovereignty, independence, and territorial integrity. China also went on to blame India for the coronavirus uh, on unrelated things. The Chinese have blamed India for the coronavirus, now saying that it is originated from India back in 2019 Meanwhile, China is using the vaccine to strengthen ties with Pakistan. Now, when you look at a map uh, and you go to where China is, and then when you look at the countries I've just named, India, Pakistan, and Nepal, you'll notice that China is went boxing China, uh, not boxing China, they're boxing India in. China is on the China is to the north of Nepal and India is to the south of Nepal. Nepal owns a chunk of the Himalayan mountains. However, its territory expands outwards, uh, southwards to flatland. If China were to gain access militarily through Nepal, that would effectively enable them to bypass the Himalayas as a physical barrier between them and India. And now that's the geo, that's the geographic outlook uh, just from Nepal. So there's reason enough for the Chinese to be allying themselves with Nepal as they are. That and if Nepal were to become an Indian ally, it would enable India 
to have uh, undue influence into Tibet, a region, a very sensitive region in China as well. Now, Pakistan, which is to the west of India, uh, Pakistan represents, well, a western flank to any potential disagreement with India and China in this Cold War that is ongoing between the two. And as I've mentioned before, the Chinese are trying to box India in. I mentioned it on previous podcast episodes. But you can see when you look on this map that Pakistan, China, Nepal, China's building ties in Sri Lanka, which is an island to the southeast of India. If you go all the way down, you'll see that little island right off of India's uh, southern coast. That's a box, right? That is a box. The Chinese are attempting to strangle India's movement. And if you remember before, India's response to that was to involve itself in the South China Sea and sign a 10-year military pact with Japan, effectively counter-encircling the Chinese. So a double envelopment from both sides, as they are now locked into this engagement that's going probably going to be long-term. If we're being honest here, it's probably going to be long-term, just like the U.S.-Soviet Cold War was. Except these countries are, well, a lot closer and the countries involved are all going to be their neighbors. While the Chinese and Indians will have a hard time reaching each other directly, their neighbors and having access through those neighbors can enable them to seriously hinder and screw each other over. If China gets access to Nepal and Pakistan, military access, you could be looking at Chinese troops being able to march across the open flats of northern India and western India. If India is able to corral the nations to the east of China along the first island chain, so Japan, uh, Taiwan, the Philippines, Indonesia, Malaysia, if India, if India is able to corral them into an alliance against China, that could threaten Chinese shipping. They could do little bombardments on the Chinese coastline, really hampering China economically with regards to their exports of manufactured goods to the rest of the world. Yeah, that's a, it's a really tight situation that they're entangling themselves in and counter-entangling because, well, if you just sit there and do nothing, the other side's going to screw you over. But, uh, that is very interesting developments in this new Cold War. You heard it here first. While everyone else was talking about U.S.-China, we are talking about China-India. And in time, people will find out that we are right. (laughs) Or at least I hope. Yeah. Alright, so I do believe that's it for them. For now, anyways. Again, we're looking at a long-term struggle. So, China is closening its ties with... Well, strengthening its ties with Nepal and Pakistan. uh, Amidst a time when India is reportedly heading for a recession. So, there's that. 
And now we'll move over to Poland. So in Poland, there is protests over a court ruling uh, where abortions for life-threatening pregnancies were basically ruled as unlawful and are effectively banned in the country. And there are people protesting this, and the protests are continuing, and I believe they are growing. Uh, and it raises, it's beginning to raise questions over the stability of the country, at least at the moment anyways. They seem to be pretty divided over this issue, but if demographics and demographic changes are indicative of anything, it's likely going to be that people who aren't aborting their kids are going to have kids, and the people who are aborting kids will not, or will, or will have fewer kids, enabling the pro-banning of abortion side to win out in the end, just due to demographic weight in the future from, well, having kids and not aborting them. So the abortion issue is likely to be lost on all fronts in the future just from people having kids. That's what I see moving forward. But for the time being, the pro-abortion side does have the weight in numbers to get their ideal policies pushed through. Now, they'll probably still lose in the long term, again, from people who have kids and are opposed to abortion. But for now, they still hold influence over the issue. And it's, again, throwing questions uh, about the stability of the country. Because it's pretty... It's a pretty... It's a very, very sensitive issue that is uh, kind of unfolding in front of us right now. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Uh, Poland is currently in a bit of a dispute between the EU... Uh, Poland and Hungary, we'll get into Hungary later on, but um, they're in a dispute with the EU over the budget. Uh, many uh, high-ranking political figures, uh, like George Soros, um, uh, George Clooney, I just saw today, and Joe Biden, the potential president of the United States, they have all condemned Poland and Hungary's leadership as being authoritarian, and di and dictatorships. That's it. there we go. So, you know, I personally don't know if I would agree with those um, classifications for the countries, but maybe there's just something I'm missing that they know of. But who knows? As far as we can tell, Poland could potentially be forced to do the EU's bidding if and only if the pro-abortion side um, is effectively taken advantage of by the EU to force through EU policy into Poland, whose leadership is right now rejecting uh, EU policy. So there's something to look out for. And we're going to move from there onto Afghanistan. We're, we're all over the place today. So in Afghanistan... There's an uneasy peace potentially on the horizon. Now, both the Afghan government and the Taliban, who've been at war for decades now, um, they have agreed to peace talk procedures. The procedures, so there's currently still not exactly peace, but they are getting there. 
or at least that's how it seems right now. However, there is disagreement between the two over how the peace should be achieved. The Taliban wants their peace agreement with the United States to serve as the basis um, for that peace deal. So basically, the peace agreement with the Taliban and the United States was that the Taliban would cut ties with all terrorist organizations and in exchange, the U.S. would withdraw their troops. And America, the Trump administration recently just put in a new defense secretary, I believe. I'm not entirely sure on the exact position, but a new guy, I think his name was Esper, and he has immediately gone for the jugular with regards to troop withdrawals, and we are supposed to draw down our troops from 4,500, so that's 4,500 troops in Afghanistan, down to 2,500 by January 15th, and there is apparently more that are supposed to be leaving by March of next year. Now, the problem is that the Afghan government doesn't like this. They call it a premature withdrawal uh, that, will, that will probably fall on deaf ears from the American populace. Maybe Joe Biden would be more committed to Afghanistan. He has um, taken up the position of strengthening alliances, and he does have a lot of people, and he's uh, trying to appoint to his cabinet that would be more pro-intervention, pro-Afghan war. So if he does take office, that'll be something to look out for. But the Afghan government doesn't like the, that idea because they want U.S. troops there. They're one of the few countries in the Middle East that do. But I don't think the American troops are going to be there for much longer. Uh, the, the Afghan government hasn't exactly commented on their position aside from that. So, again, this is going to be something to look out for. And if the peace talks fail, you, we're probably going to be looking at a fully-fledged war between the two sides again. Uh, and this time, the Americans are going to be nowhere to be found. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's good for America, probably maybe not good for Afghan unless the fighting does end in one side winning. So, eh, you take what you can get. But uh, in other news, we're just going to pop on over directly west of Afghanistan and west of the country from there to Turkey. Uh, Turkey had their third quarter economic figures currently outperform their peers and neighbors with a 15.6% expansion for their third quarter. And that is, that'll be significant for my later point down the line. I just wanted to bring that up while we were still in the region. But now we're going to go to OPEC. So OPEC is going to be conducting their biannual meeting. Uh, at the time, it was uh, I wrote this. My note says that they're going to be doing it on Monday, which for us means today. So they're doing their meeting, their biannual meeting on 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 today. Okay, I'll, and their minist their ministerial ministerial there we go ministerial meeting uh which is going to be a second meeting that they'll do is going to be on tuesday and that will likely be when opec uh 
decides on what the oil prices are going to be for the block. Now, demand is currently low in Europe and lower in America than it would usually be, although America is a bit of a weird place for them because America is energy independent, so they they already probably aren't expecting to get much out of America, out of America's oil markets because the Americans are eating up their oil markets by producing lots of shale oil. So they're probably more focused on the low demand in Europe right now due to the lockdowns. And again, we'll get into the lockdowns later on. Demand, however, is higher in Asia. So we're probably going to see them put a heavy emphasis on taking over the Asian market for the time being. Uh, Russia and Iraq, are they're likely not going to cut production if cuts to production are demanded or deemed as what is necessary. Again, probably due to the collapse in demand due to lockdowns. But Iraq and Russia are probably not going to cooperate on a cut to production. Iraq, because their economy is in trouble from the lockdowns, and Russia never cuts production anyway, because they, they produce oil in Siberia, and if they stopped, they would freeze over and they'd have to redrill. So they're probably not going to cut production. So if there is a price hike due to a cut in production largely from the uh, Saudi Arabian and United Arab Emirate side cutting back production and uh, Venezuela probably maybe I think they're OPEC plus I'm not entirely sure if they're OPEC or OPEC plus but if there is a cut to production and a rise in prices Russia will disproportionately benefit because well they don't cut they don't cut their production <laughs> but uh Speaking of Russia, our our uh, favorite here, class favorite, Russia is, well, wow, speaking of Russia and oil, Russia is nearing the completion of their Nord Stream 2 project, uh, which is between them and Germany, where they will send natural gas uh, through a pipeline that will go from Russia through the Baltic Sea into Germany, if I'm not mistaken. I believe, yes, yes, it's going gonna, it's gonna to go through the Baltic Sea instead of through countries. And that's why uh, the Danish were in on the, uh, the uh, what, what, what word am I looking for? They were in on the program, but they were able to stand in the way because it went through their waters. There we go. But um, they recently stood back and out of the way and allowed the project to go through. America's is apparently trying to put sanctions on it because from the American perspective, America is supposed to be protecting Germany, specifically from Russia. But Germany is now becoming dependent, energy dependent on Russia. So the Americans don't like that. With, you know, the whole point of NATO being defending Europe against Russia, yeah, it's kind of contradictory. So, again, NATO is uh, falling apart slowly, silently. But, uh, yeah, that's Nord Stream. The Russians are also cooperating with Iran for a production 
uh, for the production of the Sputnik V COVID vaccine. Now, this is, I believe, the either second or third vaccine that the Russians have developed. Um, so I'm not entirely sure of the effective rate on it, but it's a vaccine, so uh, people will probably take what they can get, especially if it's cheap. Uh, and it's Russia was also invited to a Chinese HIV vaccine trials. Now, Russia has uh, a bit of an HIV problem, if I'm not mistaken. I know they had tuberculosis, drug-resistant tuberculosis. Uh, and I believe HIV was also a major problem in the country. So this these vaccine trials in China could be very promising for the Russians uh, and potential fertility and birth rates. And I'll get into that later as well for the larger topic that I want to discuss in this episode. Russia has also been making moves on Georgia in the wake of the Nagorno-Karabakh peace agreement. Now, Russia currently aims for a trans-Caucasian economic integration with Russia, of course, and for them to integrate with one another. So Georgia integrating with Armenia, Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan integrating with Armenia and Georgia, and Armenia with Azerbaijan and Georgia, the Transcaucasian region, and then all three of them are expected to heavily integrate with Russia. So, they want that. Russia wants uh, integration via the lowering of boundaries and trade, transportation, and communication, again, which will probably be brokered by the Russians, secured by the Russians, Enforced by the Russian, I think I'm seeing a pattern here. It's almost as if the Russians have the Caucasus on lockdown. Go go gadget, Russian Empire. So, that's what Russia wants, and I my in my notes I have that Russia is fully digesting the Caucasus region because they literally just established control over the region. So now they're solidifying that control, in the wake of allowing Turkey to have observation posts in Azerbaijan. But if Azerbaijan is going to be dependent economically and militarily on Russian protection, then that effectively carves them out of the Turkish sphere of influence in the Caucasus and throws them firmly into the Russian sphere of influence. And again, makes them a de facto republic in the Russian Federation. So there's that. Russia's on the road to empire, and it's very interesting to watch. Uh, again, we're going to be on the lookout for what happens in Ukraine or Central Asia next. Because uh, I, I mentioned, I brought it up in the last podcast, so for more on that, check out last, last week's episode. But while we're still on the topic of Russia, their meat exports are up by 47% which is almost double last year's increase. It's been on a continual rise for the past couple years. But in the midst of lockdowns, where major food-producing nations are forcing their industries to shut down, Russia is exporting more. They're trying to export the difference, and their economy is probably going to do pretty well. Not to mention that in this time, they're going to be taking up market share that 
will probably not go away for a couple years as nations will be looking for reliable sources of food and if the Russians are not imposing new lockdown restrictions, that could make them a reliable, a reliable food partner. And it's going to do wonders for the Russian economy moving forward. Again, uh, tying into the larger topic that I'm going to get into in just a moment. Now, uh, Russia's exports, again, are double the last year's increase at 47%. Uh, their top exports last year were primarily to China, Kazakhstan, and Kyrgyzstan. Kyrgyzstan is a mountain nation um, just south of Kazakhstan. So if you go to China and then you go west till you see Kazakhstan, there's a little nation between them. That's Kyrgyzstan. So that was their previous top export destinations. But this year, Iran, Hong Kong, and Belarus joined the top export list for Russian meat while other new buyers of Russian meat exports being Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Georgia, and Moldova. All four of those countries are former Soviet republics. Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan are in Central Asia. They are the farthest south and the middle country in Central Asia, Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan. Russia already has military alliances with Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and Tajikistan, and Belarus, and Armenia. So what we're seeing here is Russia's economic influence, just from this food, being a reliable food exporter, is being strengthened in the former Soviet sphere. So... And what really took my interest was the Central Asian countries, Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan. And remember, Kyrgyzstan was already on the list of the top destinations for Russian meat exports. Uh, Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan. So Tajikistan is the only one of the stands that were a part of the Soviet bloc that are currently not top uh, destinations for Russian meat. But that could change. Who knows? But that's almost all of Central Asia. So remember, when Russia locked the Caucasus down, I brought up that either Central Asia or the Ukraine would be next. And that would probably depend on which one was more convenient at the time when Russia finished digesting the Caucasus. And it's looking like they could use their economic influence in the region to impose control over the nations that they do not currently have military alliances with which would be Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan. So there's that. Moldova is also a former Soviet Republic. It's um, just southwest of the Ukraine. So whenever the Ukraine is on is put on lockdown by the Russians, you could see Moldovia, Moldavia, or Moldova, however you pronounce that. You could see a uprising in Transitria where there's a military conflict and then the Russians step in as peacekeepers and voila, Russia's in control of <laughs> the former Soviet sphere minus the Baltics. All right. So, again, the Ukraine and Baltic trio are exempt from this list for obvious reasons. They see, and more importantly, treat Russia as an enemy and likely with good reason. 
Russia has funded and backed a rebel movement in the Ukraine, the Little Green Men, and the Baltic Trio uh, don't want to be annexed again. So there's that. All right. We'll get into Hungary uh, and the relative power of nations in just a moment. All right, we're back. And now we're going to get into Hungary and the larger theme that I've noticed uh, gathering information for today's podcast episode. So the Hungarian Minister of Foreign Affairs, uh, Foreign Affairs and Trade, confirmed that Hungary was set to import about 6.2 billion meters of natural gas from Russia, while also promising to enable the transit of Russian gas to Serbia, a longtime Russian ally, uh, which lies directly south of Hungary, uh, to allow the, the gas to reach Serbia through Hungary. Now, Hungary under Viktor Orban has been taking a demo- has been undertaking a demographic recovery effort. Uh, where they're trying to recover their birth rates, the, well, their fertility rates. So it was like 1.27 before, uh, but he, uh, Victor Orban, has implemented a lot of pro-family, uh, pro-childbirth policies that have brought it all the way up to 1.5. Now it's currently stagnating it around there, but as time goes on, having more kids could eventually become cultural. So when you have more kids, it could become cultural. And that could in turn continue to boost their fertility rates up and up to above the 2.1, which is considered the replacement rate. You have 2.1 kids for every couple. And the 0.1 collectively is able to account for uh, deaths that would happen from children or people that aren't having those other kids. So I see the potential for Hungary to be a mid-century power of the 21st century. Now, Russia is also trying to do the same. They are giving a check for women who have kids that's led to it that's led to a drop in their abortion rates, but um, uh, increase dramatic increase in child abandonment rates. <laughs> so there was unintended side effects of that, but it could help reverse demographics in Russia as well. And you'd have a generation of hardened street children coming into power in about 20 years. So we'll see what that does for Russia. And, but... In many places around the world, you don't see this. You don't see even the attempt to bring back uh, kids, people having kids. China got rid of the one-child policy and went to the two-child policy. So they are trying to get people to have kids as well. Japan and I believe Iceland were trying to get people to have kids. They were like paying you. Iceland, I know for a fact. Japan, I speculate. So, the decline in birth rates and the aging of populations is becoming an increasingly known problem for governments around the world and an increasingly dealt with problem for governments around the world. 
so and well I say increasingly but there's only like five <laughs> but countries are aging really fast the populations of them and we could see that as time goes on and people get old particularly the boomers which in many countries represent this take up a vast share of the country's population as a percent of the population as they get older and start dying from natural causes and age we could see this massive horrific peacetime die-off that we haven't seen in Europe and many countries in Asia uh, since the plague since the plague hit Europe but in light of that and the COVID restrictions uh, tanking economies around the world, it has brought me to this notion, or rather conclusion, that we could potentially be seeing right now in front of us uh, mid-century powers, powers that are going to, how should I put this? So basically, because countries are getting weaker due to demographic and they're temporarily going to be weakened by their COVID restrictions and lockdowns and the effect that's going to have on their economy, we could be seeing, well, we are seeing, the relative power in nations shift. The relative balance between countries shift. I brought up Turkey and their third quarter performance. They have outperformed their peers, which included China in the graph that I looked at with regards to the growth. But, you know, China has a way bigger economy, so I'm not going to talk about that. But as far as Turkey's neighbors go, everyone, they beat out everyone in terms of growth. Now, we've talked about Turkey and the potential for them to roll over their neighbors when they are weakened. Their neighbors, I mean. Uh, I brought up Hungary, and uh, the thing that brought me to, to attention with Hungary was I was looking at this really pretty um, physical map of Europe by the National Geographic. It's really cool. You should check it out if you can find it. You'll you'll know which one I'm talking about. It's the one that that's just crisp and has National Geographic on it. But anyway. I was looking at the region that used to be occupied by the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And when you look at that, and you see the mountains, and the terrain that it encompassed, that was the borders of Austria-Hungary for a while. Because it's it's mountains and water. And, well, they have the Danube flowing through the middle, so it's good for economy. And it's like, you wonder whether or not a new power will arise from there, because there was Hungary before that, just Hungary, then there was Austria, and then there was Austria-Hungary with the dual monarchy. So, and after the fall of them, it was Yugoslavia. So now, could we be looking at a new power coming out in the Central European region, specifically that Balkan Southeast European region? Because I would bet that it would be Hungary if no one else. Unless some country went on this rampage and just started dogging on countries in the region, I think it would be Hungary. And I believe that Hungary is probably set to 
dominate this region. I believe that because of what we're seeing now, which is kind of a glimpse into the future. We're seeing now, with the COVID lockdowns and restrictions, a, the balance of power, the balance of relative power between nations be shifted. So what we're seeing is that countries that were strong enough to defend themselves from, say, a neighbor before are increasingly crippled by COVID restrictions. Now, if your neighbor is locking themselves down as well, then the relative power stays the same between you and them. But what happens when your neighbor doesn't lock down anymore? What happens when they go through economic recovery while you're still locking down? The balance of power shifts. And the balance in relative power changes. And you could see that your neighbor, who was equal to or weaker than you, suddenly become a peer. Or suddenly become marginally stronger than you. Or suddenly, they're vastly stronger than you. Because you're going through a recovery effort, and they ate up the market share for, say, meat exports or oil. And now they have outsized influence and power over the region. We could be seeing something like that. And we're seeing it right now. Uh, I... I'm kind of fumbling over my words, trying to put it my thoughts into words because I didn't write this down. But we're seeing now that balance and relative power change and how that's kind of affecting the power dynamics around the world where countries in, say, Southeast Asia are locking down, but the Chinese have stopped locking down. They stopped locking down. Japan has kind of stopped locking down. South Korea's gone all in on lockdown. India has recently been reopening because their economy couldn't take it anymore. But China already reopened, largely. So the balance power between those two is currently even more in China's favor than it was before. So... Those are major powers. Those are the major powers of today. But what about the minor powers that most people aren't looking at? Like in the Middle East. Turkey is... Turkey just had a 15% increase in their third quarter performance. Whereas their neighbors are locking down. Their, Iraq is in a, still in a civil war. Syria is still in a civil war. Lebanon is still in a civil war. The... Russians just ate up the caucuses for breakfast. So where does Turkey go? With all this excess power relative to their neighbors, well, eventually they're going to eat up their neighbors. Especially if no one's there to stop them because France is locked down. France, who had the power before to send a destroyer over to the East Mediterranean and bully Turkey into backing down... What happens when the French can't do that? Because they're on lockdown and they're dealing with social unrest and they do not have the leeway to sail to the other side of the Mediterranean. What happens? Well, Russia. Either Russia stops them or no one does. And if Russia's busy digesting the Caucasus and Central Asia and the Ukraine, 
well, no one's going to stop Turkey. Unless somebody in the region is able to stand up to them. But who could stand up to them if they're on lockdown? How are you going to stand up to the mighty Turkish economy if your economy is in shambles due to lockdown? Countries are weakened right now. And the countries... Well, the countries that lock down are weakened and the countries that are res- that are uplifting these lockdowns are going to be in a better relative position than the countries that are locked down. And the longer the lockdowns go on, you could see that uh, ba- shift in power become greater and greater until countries that no one knew the name of are eating up their neighborhood. And that's just... Uh, now, I don't expect countries to start going on the war path now with the temporary changes in the balance of power. But the longer term balance of power is going to be caused likely by demographics. And that's why I brought up Russia and Hungary and their policies. And that's why I brought it up demographics in Poland as well. Because the people that have kids, well, they will become an increasingly larger portion of the population as time goes on. And that's not just national level, that's global, that's regional. What happens when Germany's fertility rates fall off a cliff, but Poland stays strong? Well, Poland's going to have an advantage over Germany. Imagine that. And that's what I see... Moving forward, countries that are having kids, countries that manage to recover their fertility rates and get them above their neighbors and keep them above their neighbors, as time goes on, they will have greater and greater power relative to their neighbors. Russia and Hungary are already throwing money at the problem. Uh, Russia and Hungary are already trying to recover their economies. Russia is not doing new lockdowns. China is not doing new lockdowns. Russia has an increase of 47% of their meat to the former Soviet sphere because they need food. Russia is sending oil and natural gas through Hungary to Serbia because they need fuel. Russia is sending natural gas to Germany because Germany needs fuel. The relative balance of power is already shifting towards the countries that are not locked down right now. And as time goes on, and the lockdowns fade, and lockdowns are replaced with the weight of demographics, the changes will go from countries that didn't lock down to countries that had kids. And on that note, I believe that Hungary will become a mid-century power. We could be looking at the rise of Hungary in the mid-century, so the 2040s, 50s, maybe 2060s, as the wave of demographics goes through, and old the boomers start to die out, and the countries that had kids start to have greater and greater influence over countries that didn't have kids. Or didn't have enough kids to counter out the loss of the boomer generation. We could see new powers arise in Europe. Specifically Hungary. I believe Hungary is set to dominate the dominate Central Europe. There we go. 
Uh, I believe that because many of their neighbors don't have good birth rates. And the ones that potentially do uh, may or may not be able to stand up to the Hungarian military. And, well, military might is dependent on whether or not you have people to fight the battle. So, people who have kids are already going to have a greater advantage over the countries that don't. Russia is recovering its demographics, or at least it's attempting to. And as time goes on, we could see a refining, even, of pro-fertility policies as countries that are desperately trying to get people to have kids, the countries that aren't taking action now, if their policies start working, you could see the countries that already have a head start implement those and get an even greater demographic advantage in later on, which could help them dominate their region. Now, that being said, I think it's important to bring up the difference in demographics between China and India, because, again, we're looking at a long-term geopolitical contest between those two. India's demographics are objectively better than China. India may not have the Chinese economy, but they have the staying power due to the weight of people that are having kids that China does not. So, we could see China take steps and measures to screw over India, but in the long term, I believe that the Indians could pull out the, the victory unless something happens internally that fractures them and the Chinese take advantage of that. But the same is true for China and the Chinese are on a ticking time bomb due to their demographics. What happens when all those tax revenues from people who are older and saving up for retirement, what happens when those go away? Well, you're either going to have to print money or eat the loss. Uh, Peter Zion brought up that a lot, and I mean a lot, of China's farming and agricultural sector is dependent on the credit, cheap credit, and the constant printing of money and pumping money into those sectors of the economy specifically. So if anything were to go wrong, if and there's a lot of ways it can go wrong, you could have a famine in China. And you can have an unstable China, which means a dangerous China. And depending on the geopolitical situation, when that happens, uh, we could see another war between China and India. And if China has access through Pakistan and Nepal, we could see something horrendous go down between China and India. Uh, basically for the fate of, of Asia, for the fate of East and Southeast Asia, the Indo-Pacific region. And one country will emerge on top. Assuming no nukes are used anyways, but three countries, well, four countries in the region, there's North Korea, China, Pakistan, and India, all have nuclear weapons. So, that's a potential human human tragedy that we have, have yet to fathom really uh, people still aren't even looking at India and China as being in a cold war a, a nuclear armed cold war where if one side believes that they're being put at a disadvantage they might just start building nukes and that would 
have a chain reaction where the other side starts building nukes. And the next thing you know, Pakistan and North Korea are building more nukes. And, oh wow, Japan's building nukes, South Korea's building nukes. And before you know it, Indonesia somewhere has a nuke, out of nowhere has a nuclear weapon. Throwing everybody in for a loop. But China is going to be on a ticking time bomb due to their demographics. They are winning right now because they are not locked down anymore. They are going to be the short-term winners of this change in the balance of power. But in the long term, it's going to be the demographics. And we, again, could be looking at Hungary being a, re a new power in their region. And we could see... Uh, we could see some pretty borders in Europe again. You could see uh, Hungary expand out. And as they do, they'll be, oh, wow, you know, we used to have all this territory. Maybe we should take it back again. And if Hungary is maintaining friendly relations with Russia, they could have a potential partner. A potential partner in crime, that is. As they expand out. And the Russians are already doing the same. Just... On the more unofficial side of things, uh, they peacekeepers, quote unquote peacekeepers. Uh, we could be seeing a lot more peacekeepers in the future. I'll say that much. And maybe the Hungary, the Hungarians, just take a page out of Russia's book. And maybe Turkey does the same, because again, Turkey, with no room to expand north, could go south. They have a lot to gain in the south: oil, religion, food. We, we, I just brought up food with Russia. The and well, Egypt is a long-term food, a long-term breadbasket. Even if the Nile is like shriveled up due to the dam in Ethiopia, we could we could see the Turks roll in and just put a missile into that dam. And what what is Ethiopia gonna do? Well, there's nothing much they can do. As a matter of fact, there's nothing much they could do if Egypt threw a missile into the dam and. Because they don't have a land border. They do not have a land border with Egypt. So, if Egypt were to develop a missile capable of hitting the dam, or just through a missile barrage that had the range to hit and damage the dam, damage the dam, that's a whole lot of dam, you can see the dam fall apart, and Egypt gets its Nile back, or a Turkish-occupied Egypt gets the Nile back, and Ethiopia is sent back decades. Who knows? We're, we're looking at the rise of mid-century powers here based off of demographics, and we're looking at powers that are probably going to define the next, two, the next two years with regards to countries that are and are not locked down. Now, I've gone on a really long tangent about lockdowns versus no lockdown, but I do believe it's a very interesting thing to watch. Because, again, nobody's really looking at Hungary. Uh, people are barely looking at Turkey. And, well, the Russians are making moves uh, that are basically going to put back the Soviet Union together. Or, you know, if they go even farther, they could put the Russian Empire back together. And I believe it's a very fun thing to watch here on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> Or the other side of the Pacific when we're talking about the the Cold War 2.0 going on. But um, I think 
I think that's all I have. I'll get into closing thoughts in just a minute, uh, and I'll see you there. All right, we're back. We uh, keeping our eyes on the growth of the rush of the new Russian Empire. Well, I, I wonder when they'll declare it. Probably when they have everything that they want, or maybe when and the the empire, the term empire, becomes popularized again, in the literal sense of the word, rather than something else. But uh, yeah, seeing the rise of new powers, like. And potential changes to the map that we've all gotten used to, uh, those changes have yet to be uh, recognized, but I do believe they're coming. Uh, we could see Turkey move through the south and start occupying more of the Middle East, Syria, the Syrian civil war is coming to a close, the Iraqi civil war is coming to a close, and they're probably going to demilitarize to a degree after the wars are over. And that'll leave room for Turkey to step in, especially if they enjoy outsized economic growth in the years, potential decades moving forward. And they could take over the region. We we see that they're using militants and drones and lasers, uh, potentially defining new tactics of warfare uh, that are more suited to their region. Because technology diffuses until it finds a place where it, it can make home. Lasers in high humidity don't work too well. The disruptions in the air uh, put the lasers off, but in the desert where it's clear and there's no humidity, it's it's a killer. Combine that with drone warfare, and blitzkrieg, or shock and awe as we say it today, Turkey could make serious moves, and they have good demographics too, so they're they're in for the long term. Hungary could be in for the long term, even if they don't reach the 2.1. And the same goes for Russia. They just have to beat their neighbors. If they beat their neighbors, that's it. They win. And they can focus on themselves. Uh, The the birth of the Russian Empire is... The new Russian Empire is going to be a personal favorite of mine to watch. Hungary will be interesting to watch as well especially given the strenuous ties uh, between them and the EU. The EU is now targeting uh, Hungary and Poland more than before, Uh, and we'll see where that goes. I believe the EU will have an easier time getting what they want out of Poland because of how divided they are, but Hungary will probably be a harder nut to crack uh, moving forward. And again mid-century powers on the rise but i think that's all we have for today uh yeah that's it i hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast the world is changing and we could be seeing some new faces on the map and we're gonna have fun watching it together will we be around in two decades who knows but i've been your host Sean wade and you've been listening to this week in geopolitics So till we meet again next Monday, servus.